Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you are here with us this morning. If this is your first time with us or uh, if you haven't had a chance to grab one yet, uh, we have some scripture journals for you guys uh, from the book of James. That's what we're studying together right now. So if you want one of those, that's our free gift to you. Just raise your hand and we'll have somebody hand one to you. Uh, parents, if you want to dismiss your kids to Aletheia Jr. over here to my right, uh, you can go ahead and go as well. So James chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning, verses 14 through 26. So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles or your scripture journals to that spot. And I want to pose a question to you guys as we start our time looking at this text this morning. What do we do? And I mean this, you know, kind of rhetorically, but I mean also as, a, as just a on a large picture scale. What do we do as, as humans? What do we do as, as, as people when our words and our actions do not line up with one another? How, how are we called to respond when our actions do not line up with, with words? And th- this is tough. Right? I, I think back to a, a really good friend I have um, who in high school, he, he was dating this girl. They were high school sweethearts and they went away to college um, and, and they went to separate schools and, but they had been together for years at this point, probably three or four years by the time we got to college. And they claimed to love one another. Uh, they, were, they, they claimed they were going to get married one day. And as they went off to college, she cheated on him multiple times. And I, I remember, you know, that they, they, they were in this rocky relationship. And, you know, I mean, I always find it fascinating how we just kind of tend to operate as human beings in general. You know, we had a 19 year old seeking counsel and wisdom from life from other 19 year olds. You know, so he was coming and talking to all of us as his friends. And obviously we didn't know what the heck we were talking about, but we were trying our best to help him anyway. And he's like, you know, I just don't know what to do. This is really tough. I want to, I want to forgive her and move on. And meanwhile, we as friends who loved him and cared for him were kind of put in this bind because she was claiming she loved him and and he was claiming he loved her. And yet, I I would say that the actions of both sides didn't really display that, but in in particular, her her actions did not line up with the words that she was sharing with him. And, And it was really, really difficult because, you know, I remember one particular time in, when we were home for the summer and we were all together and, and somehow this came up and you want to talk about awkward, it, it was. And as they, as they were discussing this with one another and our opinions somehow got, got asked, I, re, I remember saying, like, I was like, I don't think you really love him. It seems like it's a, it's a fake love to me. It's a counterfeit form of love. Because if you did, you wouldn't just shower him with words, but you would follow it up in a real tangible way with action. You know, the, the Reverend Sam Albury, he's a, an Anglican pastor in England, he says that when, when we do not always live out what we say, we believe. But we always do, excuse me, but we do always believe what we live out. Let me say that again. We do not always live out what we say we believe, but we do always believe what we live out. And James, in many ways, is going to be tackling this very idea this morning 
about this idea of when our words don't line up with our actions and what we do with that. All right, look at what he says in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is going to be the, the thesis of what we're going to look at this morning. Right? If someone claims to have faith in Jesus Christ but has no works attached to it, can that faith save them? And I'm going to be upfront with you guys, and I'll give you another disclaimer. This is going to be a, a tough passage this morning. It, it, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament, both from a doctrinal and theological perspective, but also I would argue on a much more practical level, which the, the book of James tends to be far more practical than many of the other New Testament epistles. But this one, if you leave this morning not being challenged in some way, I, I would venture to say you have not allowed the word of God to really penetrate this morning. Because even as I prepared my message this week, I was challenged multiple times throughout the week. And James is going to kind of make two points in these verses. That faith in Jesus is easily claimed, but that faith in Jesus is not always easy to actually live out. And James is going to really tug at our heartstrings this morning in this section of the letter because he wants us to understand that it is possible to profess faith in Christ but not actually possess it. That we can claim to profess faith in Jesus but actually possess a counterfeit faith. To put it another way, as we saw back in James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It is quite possible that you can believe to be a follower of Jesus and be deceiving yourself the entire time. That we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are in Christ when we might not actually be. And so James is going to break this argument down in into kind of two sections. And his, his thesis is going to be this, that it's possible to profess faith in Jesus and not actually possess it. And then he's going to give four examples. Two of them are going to be examples of fake or counterfeit faith. And two of them are going to be examples of true saving faith and, and how we live that out. And as I said earlier, this is a tough passage and many, many theologians even have a hard time reconciling what James says this morning with what Paul teaches on faith and works. And so I'm going to do the best that I can to reconcile those towards the end of the message. But, but just know, James is going to be coming at the issue of faith from a completely different perspective than what Paul often is coming from. So, so just as you're reading that this morning, just know that if you tend to be highly, highly theological and, and doctrinally focused, that that when James is making his arguments this morning, he is coming at it from a different angle than Paul often is to start with. 
but I will try to address those as best I can. So let's look at this first example of what James would consider to be a fake or a counterfeit faith, or even as he says later on in verse 24, a dead faith. Look at, uh, look at verse 15 with me. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you see, James gives an illustration of what fake faith looks like. And and in in his illustration, you have a Christian who does not have basic necessities to live. And if our response to that person as a brother or sister in Christ is to look at them and say, go in peace, but then give them nothing to actually help them, James's response to us is this, what good is that? What good is it if you have the means by which to help somebody Know that they need that help and then don't help them. That word good there in the Greek is this word uh, aphelos, and, and it means profit or gain. So basically what James is saying here is what will this person get merely from your words? There is no profit for them. There is no gain. You've done nothing for them. Maybe you've encouraged them slightly emotionally, but as far as a tangible necessity and what they need, you've provided them nothing. There is no profit. There is no gain. These are simply empty words without any real value attached to them. See, there's a way of thought that is attached to this illustration that James is giving here. And it's something that I think we as Christians can fall into fairly easily, right? It's what Bonhoeffer would describe as a cheap faith or cheap grace, right? Where we take the promises that God gives us in Christ, that we are loved and forgiven and adopted as his children, but we tie no actual merit to it based upon what, how we need to respond to the gospel. But there's this, this underlying current sometimes inside of the church and a lie that we can deceive ourselves into believing that goes like this, that if I simply say the right things to other people or believe the right things, then that is all I need to be a follower of Jesus. And what James shares with us here in this illustration is that that is merely a sentimental faith, but not a true faith. You know, sentimentality can only get you so far. You know, I think about um, when, you, when you think about your own life and things that you're sentimental about, what, what drives the emotion of sentimentality behind that? But oftentimes, if, if you think about it deeply, you know, if it's the loss of a relationship or a failure maybe it, to pursue a certain career or degree field, right, there often becomes a sentimental emotion that's attached to that thing or the death of that thing. But if you think long and hard about it enough, oftentimes 
with that, the sentimentality exists because there simply was not the effort or the discipline put place to continue to pursue that thing. You know, I think about how I didn't finish my senior year of wrestling because I got into an argument with my coach over whether I should be drilling these same moves I knew over and over again or whether it made more sense for me to go try and cut weight. And when I think about my career as a high school wrestler, I get very sentimental about it. And the reason I get sentimental about it is one, because it's over, but two, because attached to it was a lack of discipline and self-control in my own life that led to the end of it all instead of just the natural order of things. And what James is trying to get us to see as readers here is that it's really, really easy to claim faith in Christ, but it's a lot harder to live it out. And that a Christianity without deeds attached to it is a dead Christianity. There is an expectation that God has of believers to meet the needs of other brothers and sisters if we are able to meet those needs. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good sentiment that God asks of us. It's a command God gives us as the church to help provide for one another. Right? Turn over to Galatians chapter 6 with me. Right? And look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 10. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. See that? And then look at this next part. And especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See, what Paul is saying there is that as opportunities arise to help people, to love on people, to tangibly come alongside them and bless them, that there is an expectation that we should be doing that, especially for those who are inside the body of Christ with us. A church that claims to love Jesus but won't help one another in times of need is simply a church that claims Christ but has no true faith alive attached to it. I say What we need to understand is that real saving faith in Jesus starts with faith. But that faith leads to obedience to Jesus Christ. Hear me on this again, because the order here is very important. Right? To be a follower of Jesus. To be saved by grace is through faith, that it starts with faith in Christ. But that faith in Christ, in true followers of Jesus, always leads to obedience to Jesus. Right? One of the things, for those of you guys that have been around for any period of time, you've probably heard me say this a hundred times. If you don't want your life to change, do not become a follower of Jesus Christ. At least not a true one. Because if you truly know Jesus and are his follower and his disciple, you will be changed. You will be transformed. No ifs, 
ands, or buts about it. And I would submit this to you this morning. If you are claiming faith in Jesus and it is not changing you, if that faith is not leading to actions of love towards others as Jesus asked of his disciples, then James is asking you this question. What good is it? Is it real? And look, this, it is not lost on me that, that this is a difficult question, right? Because, because some of us tend to, we tend to kind of fall in one of two camps when we start talking about our own performance, our own works, our own obedience. We tend to be overly self-critical or we tend to be overly gracious to ourselves. And what we need to do is stop judging ourselves by our own standards, our own performance, and instead test them against what God's word says and then find our identity and what God says to be true about us and then ask by faith for God to move us in a direction where our actions would line up with obedience to Jesus. Because otherwise we run the risk of deceiving ourselves and believing that we are in Christ when we're really not. And James's point here is that if we possess a faith that talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk, that we are living a sentimental faith that is not truly in Christ. Now, the second example he's going to show starts in verse 18. Look, look at it with me, right? We've got that first example of a sentimental faith. Look at this next one. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James kind of as, as New Testament authors often do anticipates some of the pushback that he's going to get from making that statement that he just made. He, he anticipates this, and he knows that basically the argument would go like this. Well, James, we hear you, and like we, we hear that you care about deeds and works, but you know, that's kind of just because you're, you're attached to, uh, your attachment to Judaism culturally. That, that's why you care so deeply about that, right? You, you grew up entrenched in Jewish culture, which was tied to both the, 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 the ceremonial law, but also the, the practical law that you were called to live out. So, so really, like, you need to remember that as you're thinking through this, like your, your thoughts as a Christian are, are tainted by your, your Jewish background and heritage. And yet you're probably a little overly focused on actions and works because of your own cultural background. And basically the argument would kind of go like this. They would, they would respond by saying, you know, hey, some Christians display their faith in different ways, right? You have some who will do it confessionally, right? Will just say, hey, here's all the things we believe. And as long as you believe these things, we're on the same team. And then you would have some that would claim it to be tied through doctrinal beliefs, 
right, which would go a little bit deeper than just confessions, but say like, hey, like to be a true Christian, you have to actually believe these deeper truths theologically about God. And if you don't, then you don't really have faith. You, you don't believe enough about who God says he is to really, really believe in him. And then there would others that would, that would say, it's solely through your lifestyle. You can kind of believe whatever you want to be true about God as long as your actions line up with what God says we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to treat one another. While others might say it's solely through mission and evangelism and whether you're sharing your faith and, and who really cares about the, the, the deep down doctrinal beliefs as long as you're sharing your faith with others and, and we're seeing new churches started and new ministries started that we're doing the right thing. And James's response to this argument would be that is absolutely and profoundly not true. 100% that is not true. He's, he's trying to get us to see that faith, right? So if you're a professing follower of Jesus in here this morning and you possess saving faith, right? Your faith, which saves you, will lead you to being seen in your deeds and actions. And that if it's not being displayed, you need to take a step back and ask yourself, what good is your faith? And then he shares there in verse 19, he gives this example of demons, right? And here's what he's going to end up doing, right? Let me read verse 19 for you, and then, and then I'll explain it. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So that, for those of you guys that have spent some time at, at Aletheia, you know that the, that the word Aletheia in the Greek means truth, right? So if, if we didn't use a Greek word to name our church, the name of our church would be Truth Church. So one of the things that kind of comes from that is this idea that we care deeply about doctrine and who God says he is and processing through those things and processing through our beliefs. And there, there tends to be different denominations or different tribes inside of Christianity. And as best I can tell, the, the things that kind of unite or cause these different tribes to not partner with one another has a lot to do with what we just talked about just a minute ago on like what they believe the focus of the faith is supposed to be. And one of the common things that happens, at least in our tribe, and if you're here this morning, I would consider you to be a part of our tribe, is, is we care about doctrinal truths, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Doctrine is important. What, what God says to be true about who he is and what he's done and how we respond to that really matters. God cares deeply about that. But here's kind of like maybe one of the fallacies that can kind of develop with that type of thing. You believe that as long as you believe and know the right things about God, your, what you do and your actions doesn't matter. And here's what James is saying. Hey, you believe that God is one, right? You're monotheistic. Congratulations. So do demons. Just because you have the right set of doctrinal beliefs does not mean you are automatically in Christ. Even demons have some correct doctrinal beliefs about who God is and knowledge of who he is, but they don't follow him. They have no faith in him. They don't trust him, and they don't respond to him in obedience. Demons know 
doctrinal truth about God. Demons have good theology. They shudder at the very thought of who he is because their theology is so good, and yet their actions deny his authority and his glory because they've rebelled against him. True faith is not just doctrinally true. It's not just confessed. But ultimately, it is seen in obedience by others. Right, turn over to Mark chapter 2 with me. Right, there's this beautiful example of, I think, practically helping us to try to, to wrap our minds around this idea of faith saving us, but that faith gets put into actions and is demonstrably seen by those around us. Right? Look at Mark chapter 2. This is an awesome story. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, the Pharisees have great doctrine. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now I want you to go back and look at verse 5 with me. And when Jesus saw what? Their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It wasn't their actions that actually saved them. But what did their actions display? Their actions displayed that they believed Jesus is who he claimed to be. And their actions demonstrably showed what was going on internally. See, what James is trying to get us to see here is that true saving faith ends up being visible to those around us. And when we hide behind nice words or we hide behind just sound doctrine, James's point to us is this. Mere words are not enough. But that true saving faith in Christ 
takes hold in our hearts. And that then leads to good works of obedience for God and his glory and demonstrably shows the faith that we possess internally. And he's going to give us two examples of what that can look like in the life of believers if a true saving faith is possessed. The first one is going to be Abraham. And look at verse 20 with me back in James chapter 2. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Love James. He doesn't pull any punches, does he? Right. Anybody feeling super encouraged yet? Right. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. All right, so if you're unfamiliar with the story of Abraham, right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. Right, I want to give us a little bit of, 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 of background to understanding what James is talking about here. But we need, what we need to understand about Abraham is Abraham was this nomadic, per, uh, nomadic dude in in. Ur, he was with his family, and God came to him in a vision and was like, hey, leave your family, leave your economic well-being, leave your inheritance, and go to this land that I'm going to show you. And when you go, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to show you where you settle. I'm going to give you all these things. And he made all these promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed God in this vision and responded. Okay, So when you get to Genesis 15, you're going to see this really, really key moment happen in the life of God and his people. Starting, starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, so this is right after um, Abram, Abram had rescued Lot, right? And Sodom and Gomorrah had taken place. And look what happens. The Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there's this really, really kind of beautiful moment here happening in Abram's life. He's obeyed God. He's had some ups and downs, right? But he's obeyed God. And in this moment, right, he's like, hey, God, I don't really understand how you can be promising all this to me. And I don't even have a son. 
I don't have anything to pass down. I don't have any descendants. I don't have any offspring. And God says to him, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. And it says that Abram believed him. And in that belief or in that faith, God does what? Counts it to him as righteousness. Means that God declared that he was just, acceptable in God's eyes. Why? Because of his faith. Not because of his actions, but because of his faith. This is the very point that Paul makes in his letters. right? But at the same time, look at what James is saying to us. Because if you go then to Genesis chapter 22, you see that through a series of events, Abram and his wife have actually, against all odds, conceived this child, and he was born, and his name is Isaac. And as Isaac gets older, we're not exactly sure how old he is, but he's probably somewhere around the age of 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. God comes to Abraham in a vision and says, all right, hey, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. And if any of you guys are like, whoa, that seems a little odd, ding, 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 yes, it is. It's very strange, right? This is not something that God asked of his people, child sacrifice. Abraham, this guy who wanted a kid more than anything, wanted to follow God's promise to him and follow this inheritance, and there were ups and downs and all that. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes, but he's, he's, he wants to do this more than anything. And so he, he responds, he's like, all right, God, I trust you, let's go. And they climb the mountain together, Right? You have Isaac actually carrying the, the wood for the altar himself on his back to his own death. They get to the top of the mountain, and Isaac's like, hey, Dad, where's the animal sacrifice? And Abraham's like, God will provide, and he's technically not lying. Right? They build the altar. Isaac lets Abraham tie him to the altar, and right as Abraham's about to kill him, God cries out and says, stop, don't do it. Now I know that your faith is genuine. And he looks over to the side and in a thicket is a ram and he unties Isaac and instead they sacrifice the ram to the Lord right then and there. But what I want you to understand as I have unpacked that story for you and what James is trying to get us to see here on this example of true faith in Abraham is this. Abraham was fully prepared to kill Isaac in obedience to God, even when it seemed crazy. And if you think about it deeply enough, Abraham could have even questioned all of this saying, this would kill God's promise. This would kill God's promise to me. But Abraham's faith is so strong in what God has said he will do that he's willing to kill Isaac because he knows that even that will not stop God's promise to him from being fulfilled. And that God will either provide for him another son through Sarah, or even crazier, that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead right then and there. Now imagine that level of faith because that's what it would have taken for Abraham to follow through in obedience here. See, Abraham's faith led to obedience even when it was seemingly crazy to do so. 
And church, I want you to hear me when I, when I say this next part. There are times when obedience to God for us is going to seem crazy. It might, it might not be sacrificing a child. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say as it won't be. But it's going to appear radical. It might mean turning down that right job promotion. It might mean settling economically when the world tells you not to. It might mean giving away when you don't have money to give. It might mean taking radical steps in your life to put sin to death, which puts a hold on your life and causes life to be a little more complicated and difficult. But true faith follows God and his promises to us and that in Jesus Christ, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And therefore, we respond in obedience not to earn God's favor, but to display the favor that has already been declared over us in Christ because we know that obedience to him will bring him glory and it will be ultimately for our good. You know, Abraham was revered by the Israelites. He was the father of their faith. And it was his faith that motivated him to the actions that he displayed. Now, the second example, and I love how James does this, right? Because he, he gives the father of the faith, and then he picks this obscure Gentile prostitute in Jericho to be the second example. Right? This is what God does, right? You know, we tend to get be very like inwardly focused and like, hey, our tribes got it all together. And even here you have James being like, hey, Abraham, the father and hero of our faith, he's a stalwart of the faith. And like here you would have all the Jewish Christians being like, yes, right? The Israelites had it right. And he's like, and don't forget Rahab the prostitute and brothel leader in Jericho, right? If you know anything about Rahab, in Joshua chapter one and two, right? Joshua sends in the spies into the promised land to take it. And as he sends them in, he, he, he sends them into Jericho to figure out if there's any weaknesses in the city of Jericho so that they can take it. And as they get there, the spies get found out. They know that they're there. And Rahab, right, this... Uh, woman who's running a brothel inside of Jericho says, hey, whoa, hold on, go, to, go onto my roof, right? I'll hide you. And when the men and the guards come looking for you, I, I've got you, right? And, and if you turn over to Joshua chapter two, there's this really, really cool moment in verse nine, because you start thinking, why would she do this? What would cause this Gentile, pagan, non-God-fearing woman to protect these men who are eventually going to lead their army into Jericho and kill her, possibly, friends, family, neighbors, and destroy their culture. What would lead her to this type of decision? Because it doesn't seem to make a bunch of sense. Look at verse 9. 
And she said, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Want to know what motivated her to make such a radical action and decision? Faith in God. It's like, I've seen what their God has done and I am not interested in challenging him. And I will betray my own people if I have to, if it means obedience to God. And notice this, right? Rahab could have done a bunch of things, right? right? Those guys could have come into her brothel and she could have been like, go in peace. Good luck. I wish you well. Your God is good. Good luck. What does she actually do? She brings them in. She protects them. She cares for them. She risks her very health and safety for their sake because of her faith in God. Why? Because true faith in God always leads to action and obedience. Now, some of us may be sitting here and we're still saying like, I, 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 I hear you, I see it, I even see the examples, the examples make sense, but how do we reconcile what James is saying about faith and works here with what Paul says about faith and works, right? Because if you look at verse 24 again in James chapter 2, right, James is abundantly clear, right? He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, which seems to directly contradict what the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Turn over there with me. Right, some of you guys probably even have this verse memorized, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing, it is what? The gift of God. Not as a result of what? Works, so that no one may boast. Oof, right? <laughs> right? Like, we have a, what seemingly is a clear contradiction here. But I want you to notice a few things. Right? The first one is this. James does not say that faith doesn't save. He's simply saying that faith that has no works attached to it isn't really true faith. He doesn't say that faith doesn't save. He's just saying a faith that's only claimed but doesn't lead to any sort of life movement or action isn't a real faith at all. It's a dead faith. I also want to make this clear, and this is, this is something that a lot of people miss. The apostle Paul never taught that works didn't matter. There's a, it's a theological line that, that believes this, that believes, hey, we're saved by grace through faith alone, which is true. 
Right? Paul makes that abundantly clear. And they'll say this, so therefore the law and obedience do not matter at all. Right? The theological term for that is called antinomianism. It's actually been denounced as a heresy by the church for hundreds of years. Right? Well, but what I want you to understand is this. Paul, and they would use Paul as their teacher of this. They would say, hey, we're following Paul's teaching. Paul teaches that the law doesn't matter, that, that we can just, as long as we believe, we're good to go. That is not what Paul taught, right? In Acts 20, 21, right, when, when the apostle Paul is sharing with uh, the, the men in Jerusalem on like his teaching, right? Look at what he says. Will you throw that verse up for me? He testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, faith is there, but notice what he attaches to saving faith. Repentance. And if you know anything about the word repentance, it means literally in the Greek to change your mind. But the understanding of that in the Greek would be that once you changed your mind, that change of mind would lead to a change of actions. And therefore, right, what Paul is saying is, hey, when I go forward and I preach the good news of what Jesus has done for us, how he died in our place and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins so that we might be adopted into the family of God. When I teach and preach that, what I, what I preach and teach is that they must believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but in that they repent towards God of their sin and they come in alignment to obedience with him, not against him. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2 again, right? we always love reading verses 8 and 9, but most people love to just skip past verse 10. Look at what he says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, I've seen people that I would describe as being antinomian, where they believe that their obedience to Christ does not matter at all. And they will use Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine as a proof text for their belief. And it been mind boggling to me. Some of them have never even read verse 10. And that is one whole complete thought there from the apostle Paul. You want another example? Go to Romans chapter 3. Right, you have the Apostle Paul here in the book of Romans teaching on this idea of, of how, how the law reveals sin to us, but that it cannot save us. And you know how Paul is. He always knows and understands what arguments are going to be made against him. And look at verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. See what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, I, I know that I'm teaching that salvation in Jesus Christ is by grace through faith, apart from our works, that they do, our works do not justify us. But some people are not just saying it, slanderously saying, meaning they're lying about what I'm teaching and saying, that, that we should do evil so that we can enjoy God's grace all the more. And he's saying, that is not what I'm teaching. They are not understanding what I'm teaching. They're slandering my teaching and their condemnation for doing so is going to be just. 
And so we see here, one, there's actually a lot of continuity between what James is saying and what the Apostle Paul is saying. But the other thing I want you to understand is this. I want you to go back to James chapter 2 one more time with me and look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's a word in there that, I, that, that is really, really important. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That word in the Greek there literally means visibly noticeable, visibly seen. See, what James is saying is that our works show that the faith is genuine. You actually see it. See, James and Paul are not at odds. What Paul is trying to get across to his readers in most of his letters is that works alone cannot save us. And what James wants us to see is that claiming faith apart from works of obedience is a dead faith and it is not going to save you. And so I'm going to give us an opportunity now to respond to what James is saying here. Because I think James is challenging us to honestly and intentionally examine ourselves and examine our profession of faith if you are claiming to be a follower of Jesus in this room this morning. How are you living your life? Does the way you are living line up with what you profess to be true about Jesus? Not just that Jesus is Savior, but Jesus as Lord and King who has authority over your life. And here's my fear as we preach through this message, right? Because most of the time, this is what people will do. You'll be deeply convicted about the way your life is going, and we probably all should be. And instead of running to the good news of Christ dying in our place and worshiping Jesus for what he's done, we'll run to legalism. We'll create a list of rules and things we're supposed to do. We'll say, well, okay, God demands my obedience. I'm going I'm to do that now. And we push Jesus to the side, trying to then perform and earn God's love and favor. And that is not what James is saying, right? James is saying that Jesus has already earned God's favor for you. Obey him because he's worthy. Obey him to display that you truly believe that is what Christ has done for you. Not that you need to earn his favor, but that you want to declare his glory to the world around you. James is not demanding perfection of us in these verses. 
Right? There is an entire school of thought, it's called sinless perfectionism, that believes that if you're really a Christian, you'll stop sinning 100%. Nowhere in Scripture can I actually see that, but they actually teach that, at least from these verses. But just, I mean, think about James's own examples here, guys, of true faith. He gives us Abraham and Rahab, right? And he gives us the examples of what they did to display that their faith in God was true and genuine. But if you know anything about their lives, they were not perfect. Think about Abraham. He gave his, his wife away not once but twice in fear. He slept with Hagar because he didn't think Sarah was going to be able to have his child, and he was helping God out with his inheritance. That's the guy who's our example of true, genuine faith. But what about Rahab? Well, she betrayed her own people. She lied. And she ran a brothel. And yet, in God's story and in his word, she's presented to us as a stalwart of true, genuine faith, not because of her performance, but because of what her faith was in, and that was a God who loves and justifies. Because ultimately, the object of their faith, the creator of the universe, led them to obedience to obey his word, and to trust his promises. Not because they needed to in order to earn God's favor, but because they already believed in God's promises over them and that their actions should line up with that. Is your profession of faith genuine and true? True faith is not just sentimental, wishing others well, and not tangibly helping if you're able to do so. True faith is not just good theology where you believe all the right things and never respond to it. True faith in Christ will change you. God will give you a new heart He'll give you new desires. As you believe in Jesus and follow him, you will obey his example as a living faith, which is the faith we desire if you're really in him and one that is true and genuine.